so what becomes apparent in the course of the negotiations is that this NATO non-expansion pledge is used as a way to try to convince the Soviet Union, convince Soviet officials, that NATO would not dominate post-Cold War Europe in a way that the Soviets would feel uncomfortable with, which in turn, if they did not feel comfortable, might lead them to double down and try to block German reunification in the short term. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get to the show, I wanted to make an appeal to everyone that if you like what you hear on this podcast, please consider making a donation to support the show and its mission to bring critical voices about Eurasian history, culture, politics, and society. If you'd like to make a contribution, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Support the SRB Podcast button. Many of you have already generously contributed, and I want to say a big thank you for all your support. I'd also like to get listeners more involved in the show. So if you'd like to ask a guest a question after listening to this interview, please submit it at seansrussiablog.org under the Submit a Question tab. I'll then get the guest to answer one of the questions and include it on an upcoming podcast. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org as well, and I'll read some of them on the next podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Josh Schifferson to the podcast to talk about whether the U.S. and its allies made a pledge to the Soviet Union to not expand NATO East. Josh Schifferson is an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. His most recent articles are Deal or No Deal, The End of the Cold War and the U.S. Offer to Limit NATO Expansion, published in the spring 2016 issue of International Security, and Russia's Got a Point, The U.S. Broke a NATO Promise in the L.A. Times. Here's Josh Schifferinson. The deterioration of relations between the West and Russia have included this really interesting debate about history and around the origins of post-Cold War Europe. And a principal issue in this debate is over whether there was ever a promise, a pledge, or even an understanding that NATO wouldn't expand East. Uh, what are the main positions in this debate? You captured the issue very nicely. The, the main issues in the debate are ever since NATO began looking or considering expanding into Eastern Europe in the early mid-1990s, Various Russian and Soviet leaders have claimed that this NATO expansion into the former Warsaw Pact violates a pledge given by U.S. policymakers, perhaps German policymakers, in the waning days of the Cold War during the debates over German reunification, that NATO would not do any, any such. They would not move further eastward. So that's the Russian-slash-Soviet position. And I'll note that some U.S. policymakers involved at the time such as Ambassador Jack Matlock, who was the ambassador to the Soviet Union at the time, and in fact, then Deputy National Security Advisor, former Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, echoed this position. On the other hand, we have a bevy of former U.S. officials former and NATO members as well, claiming that no such promise, no such non-expansion pledge was ever offered. This is the position of Secretary of State James Baker, the position of various members of the H.W. Bush National Security Council, various foreign affairs analysts such as Ann Applebaum make this claim, 
And it's even notable that NATO itself has issued several reports. Uh, NATO as an organization has issued several several reports denying that a non-expansion pledge was ever in the offing. So we have a very stark divide between former Soviet Union, Russia, and some U.S. analysts on the one hand, and maybe what I would call the Western consensus that no such pledge was ever offered. And, and why does this history matter for current relations with Russia? Why is this debate coming up now? Well, it seems to come up in several different ways. Number one, as I mentioned, this claim has been bandied about by Russia, not just recently. It's been ongoing since at least 1994 or so, maybe a, few, maybe a year prior, a year after. It's been a very consistent theme in Russian foreign policy. It's come up recently or it's gained new salience as the crisis in Ukraine, the crisis in Georgia have come to the fore of the foreign policy debate. And as NATO itself has begun reconsidering its fundamental relationship with Russia, whether Russia is an adversary or whether some kind of pseudo-cooperative relationship is possible. Russia in the U.S. narrative, in the Western narrative, uses these historical claims to legitimate its very nasty, unpleasant behavior, which, of course, it is. It is, of course, nasty and, and predatory. We should not give Russia a pass for this. On the other hand, if we have some veracity, if we have some evidence that Russian claims are perhaps truthful, or at least have some resonance in the, his, in the history... It begs the question whether Russia is as outright of a revisionist actor as it claims to be. In other words, it's some discrepant evidence. We would love all the indicators to point to Russia as a revisionist actor. And on the other hand, if we have evidence that the history does shake out as Russia claims, then it begs the question over how revisionist Russia really is at heart. And that in turn opens up various questions as to whether NATO expansion eastward has played some role in provoking a reciprocal Russian response. Now, you've been writing about this, and you just published an academic article and an op-ed in the LA Times that I believe got a lot of attention. And one of the things I found interesting about the academic article is the sources that you use, particularly the sources that where you have quotes from very the very people who deny there is ever any real discussion or offer about NATO expansion. And in your article, you use, in addition to published sources – you use newly or recently de declassified archival documents from the U.S. government and various officials. Uh, talk about these sources, when they became public, and, and what, what are their contents? Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because I'm not a historian by training. I'm a political scientist. And as I was doing research for a separate project, I wound up going to several U.S. archives, uh, the H.W. Bush Presidential Archive in College Station, Texas, where I happen to teach the National Security Archive at George Washington University, the James Baker Papers at Princeton University. Many of the key documents have been in some of these sources, have been available in some of these archives for at least 10, 15 years or so. Others have come to light recently. So I don't want to make a claim that I'm the first person to see some of these documents, or at least that these are all new documents in, in the recent declassification sense. I would say it's about 50-50 recent declassifications, older declassifications. But what's interesting is that there's no single source. You could not just go to any one of these archives and get the full story. You had to do a lot of digging through at least three, if not more, of these archives to get more complete pictures, something that approaches what I've assembled. And I, I should note here that I also don't want to overstate what I've done here. Scholars such as Mary Cerati at the University of Southern California, Mark Kramer uh, with the Davis Center at Harvard, have done yeoman's work and heroic work in bringing much of this information to light in their own research. So 
while I've gotten access to some new documents, especially at the Bush Presidential Library, which has really opened up in the last five years or so, much of the groundwork, many of the key materials were previously brought to life by other historians. I'm just assembling it in different ways. Right, right. Well, I, I, actually, that's interesting, the assemblage of it, the fact that you just can't go to, say, James Baker's docu- archive and just based on that, that you have, in order to construct the picture that you're looking at, you need to go to several different places to assemble these documents. Why is that? Partially because the U.S. government's a complicated place, and so therefore materials are squirreled away in funny locations. Partially because when negotiating with the then Soviet Union, various entities such as the National Security Council, the State Department, and senior policymakers who are operating as as individuals and in the, in the as senior policymakers rather than leaders of bureaucracies all touched on the issue. So on the back end, when they were putting the materials away for preservation or when we try to reconstruct the picture, you have to go to the different entities to get the documents that are in their possession. So a lot of material is reproduced, say, between the National Security Archive and the Bush Presidential Library. But much material is only available in, in, in smaller segments in, in various locations. I think that will change with time, especially as the Bush Presidential Library begins or continues its terrific declassification efforts and currently classified materials are released. But right now, you still need to go to the various entities to see the various pieces of the puzzle. And, and what about the documents themselves? What kind of are what kind of documents are they? Are they transcripts of discussions? Are they memos? Various communications? It's a combination of all of this. Uh, some of the most interesting material, I think, comes from U.S.-Soviet tr- meeting transcripts, which at this point are fairly well publicized, both from the U.S. and the Western side and the Soviet side, the Russian side. But I also think many looking at the internal U.S. planning documents, the memos, conversations the, that the first President Bush and his advisors are having with NATO allies, with the Federal Republic of Germany, are also telling. Because what you really get is a sense that one thing was being said vis-a-vis the Soviets, one thing was being said vis-a-vis the allies, and another thing was being said internally. Which makes sense. You don't even even if you're friends or allies with a country or enemies, you don't present the same information in the same way. So that again puts a premium on the researcher to sit down, take all the evidence, and try to tell the story while bearing in mind that there are levels of meaning behind different statements and different documents. Yeah, and I want to get into some of that in a bit. But first, let's set up the the context in which these negotiations took place. What was the historical and political context surrounding these negotiations? And based on your reading of these various documents, what was each side trying to achieve? So let me take the first question first. I think we have to remember that by the t- that German reunification occurs in 1989 and 1990. This is as the Cold War is beginning to wind down. The Cold War in many ways, at least the Cold War in Europe in many ways, was a debate over who would own Germany. And if neither side owned Germany, how Germany would be divided between the two, between the two rival blocs headed by the U.S. and the USSR. And this is a fundamental crux of Cold War debates, as scholars such as Mark Trachtenberg and John Gaddis have amply demonstrated. So by the time we get to German reunification, which begins following around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, 
all parties basically understand the future of Germany is going to be the future of Europe. In many ways, we have NATO and the Warsaw Pact as a way for both the U.S. and the Soviet Union to project power over their segments of Germany, and also for the other European states to be given some security against the possibility of a future Germany. So by the time German reunification rolls around, all parties understand that Germany is really the ballgame for Europe and that the future of Germany, whether it's going to be a Western ally, a Soviet ally, or neutral, has widespread implications for the future of European security writ large. Now, in your article, you argue that while there was no formal deal, nothing was ever put on paper, there was no agreement the topic of NATO expansion eastward, nonetheless, as you say, quote, was more than just a fleeting aspect of negotiations, and that, quote, U.S. officials repeatedly offered the Soviets informal assurances against NATO expansion during talks on German reunification throughout the spring, summer, and fall of 1990. Uh, what role did the NATO expansion issue play in these negotiations over the reunification of Germany? You know, that's a really interesting question, and the answer to that will obviously be depend on which state you're talking about. I'm not, I've not looked at Soviet or Russian materials myself. I don't speak Russian or read Cyrillic. So I am leery about claiming that this was uh, vital to the Soviet position. But I will say that by the time you get to 1990, again, hearkening back to the question of whether Germany would be a Western ally or a Eastern ally, the Soviets are, are very concerned over preserving and not, not allowing the U.S. to dominate post-Cold War Europe, or not allowing NATO to dominate post-Cold War Europe. Therefore, gaining some kind of assurance vis-a-vis the future of NATO in, you know, if the Soviets pull out of Germany and pull out of the rest of Eastern Europe is a fundamental Soviet tenet. At least that's the American view of the Soviet issue. And it's what the Soviets are telling the United States. So what becomes apparent in the course of the negotiations is that this NATO non-expansion pledge is used as a way to try to convince the Soviet Union, convince Soviet officials, that NATO would not dominate post-Cold War Europe in a way that the Soviets would feel uncomfortable with, which in turn, if they were not, if they did not feel comfortable, might lead them to double down and try to block German reunification in the short term. Now, now I should note that at some point, the United States and its Western allies decide that German reunification is going to happen whether or not the Soviets like it or not. So this isn't a claim that says we were going to try to reassure or assure the Soviet Union to the nth degree. But it is a statement that we were trying to craft a position and craft a perception that post-Cold War Europe would be mutually acceptable in such a way that the Soviets would struggle and argue and fight less, a fight in the diplomatic sense, not the military sense, less over the future of Germany and therefore the future of European security. In your reading then of these negotiations, do you get the sense of that they are offering or this is an issue that's coming up the the americans are are and and also german the germans are putting this up for to as a reassurance to the russians but at some point in the negotiations and and as you said that german reunification is going to happen anyways regardless of what the russians want so do, at that point when that realization comes does the nato issue drop off as a carrot to give to the russians no i i don't think so i i th- i think the issue is much more the US 
U.S. has stated its position as NATO will not expand eastward, that NATO will transform into a less mili- a more political and less militarily focused alliance, which it did, I should note that, that the former East Germany will be given a special military status, and that's it, that the Soviets will not get any more concessions from the United States. So it's very much a, this is the last position, take it or leave it. It's designed to put pressure on the Soviet Union. And in some sense, we don't really know what happened because the Soviets shortly thereafter cave and don't struggle very hard. It's unclear if the U.S. was sincere in that position or playing a game of chicken just because the game ended at some point. But I think it's much more a story of this is the bottom line. Look at all this good stuff we're giving you, incidentally, and you can take it or leave it. Now, many people would say and, and are saying, okay, fine, there is there is no formal agreement about NATO expansion and, and none of this talk about a pledge really matters, right? In the real day of politics now, well, nothing's on paper, so, you know, too bad for you. So this comes to an issue, a deeper issue and something that you, you dwell on in your in your academic article, and that is the role and place of informal agreements in uh, and understandings in diplomatic relations. Talk about the place of informal agreements and understandings in the history of diplomacy in general. Let me first just make a note about the informal issue in the NATO expansion debate, and then I'll come back to the bigger uh, theoretical and academic and diplomatic issue. You know, it's very interesting to note that NATO and various Western analysts decry Russian claims of a non-expansion pledge by going nothing was written down. And they and they harp on this. NATO itself has issued many reports emphasizing that nothing was written down, therefore no promise was given. But that elides the issue because no one in Russia itself claims that they received a formal in writing pledge. Every, the, the Russian claim is that they received an informal pledge. So this question of what constitutes even an agreement and how we think about this issue, it falls at the core of the current U.S. standoff with Russia, the current Western standoff with Russia. I'll just, I should just note that point. On the bigger role of informal pledges, there are two different views on this matter. You have a legalistic perspective, which I think has widespread traction in many policy circles, that says a deal isn't a deal unless it's written down. On the other hand, much diplomatic practice and just U.S. politics in general, U.S. history in general, diplomatic history in general, hinges on the importance of informal conversations, informal assurances. Indeed, we have an entire State Department devoted to the day-to-day conduct of diplomacy that hinges often on informal conversations and implicit assurances. So to deny the role of informal assurances is a very odd thing to do since it would seem to decry the very function of a large chunk of the U.S. government. But more generally, we have informal assurances that matter in the real world all the time. The Cuban Missile Crisis famously was partially resolved by a conversation between the two Kennedy brothers and the Soviet ambassador in which a quid pro quo of trading missiles in Cuba for missiles in Turkey was reached. That was never written down, but it was informal. We have Secretary of State John Kerry recently saying that even if the Iran nuclear deal was never ratified, it would still constitute an agreement. Again, not not legally binding in a in that sense, but an informal agreement or an in, or an implicit agreement at that point in time. So these issues come up over and over in diplomacy, and we see them resonating here as well. And there's some good logic to this, right? If if you're a state and you th- and you think you're dealing with a hypersensitive matter. There are good reasons you wouldn't want to put things in writing. So, so sometimes keeping things informal doesn't, or not written down anyway, doesn't make them less important. It actually signals that they're super important, and therefore putting it in writing can rebound to your disadvantage. 
And to a large extent, too, it when I was reading this in your article and you, you raised the, the examples of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I did think of the Iran deal as one, I was also de- thinking of the negotiations, say, between Roosevelt, Churchill, Absolute, and Stalin absolutely. at Yalta. And in terms of, you know, the percentages agreement, for example, was written That's on right, an famously. famously, yeah. And so the, the interpersonal relations between these figures is highly important. And we know this, say, in the Churchill-Roosevelt-Stalin case, based on how these individuals saw each other and their willingness to trust or at least be able to work with them on a personal level. We can take it a step further, right, which is... The Yalta example is a good one. We now we know from what seventy years now of research that the it, the formal codification of the agreement at Yalta had very different meanings, even to the people involved, where they where there were winks and nods as to what the things were going to mean in practice. So again, formal agreements mean are one thing, but the super important, most valuable stuff, there's no evidence that it must be in writing or that it should be in writing. Now, I know you said that you haven't looked at the Russian side, but I do want to ask your impression what you've gotten from the American sure. transcripts of the Russian side. So if NATO expansion was so important, why do you think Gorbachev and Shevardnadze didn't push for a formal agreement, or was this just bad negotiations on their part? Well, I, I suspect it's some, a little bit of all of the above. I think historian Vladislav Zubak rightly notes, by the time you get to 1990, Gorbachev is under incredible duress. The domestic scene in the Soviet Union is unraveling. There are very few people he can trust in terms of making policy. So it's a good argument to be said that he just didn't have the bandwidth, or there just wasn't diplomatic bandwidth to get an agreement in writing, which is not a sin of om- uh, sin of commission, it's a sin of omission. As for why they didn't struggle harder, again, if you're coming to the bargaining table with the notion that says, I have a trustworthy partner, and I don't know how this game is going to shake out, and dip- diplomatic practice and common sense tell me that NATO will, that the U.S. will follow through on its commitments because they understand that I'm a big, important state, especially with nuclear weapons, and that my you know, good grace is very important to them. That Indeed, that's maybe the second half of the Cold War, this kind of implicit U.S.-Soviet bargaining or condominium over to maintain peaceful relations between the two of them. If that's the background to it, then putting things in writing is superfluous. People understand the stakes of the game. People understand the rationale. And so if that's all true and Gorbachev is under domestic constraints, then the incentive to push particularly hard to get it in writing just isn't there. The structure of the situation would suffice. Now, another issue in these negotiations that I found really interesting was the idea that NATO and the Warsaw Pact would be replaced with some kind of all-European security structure. You've noted that there was an intention of making NATO more of a political organization, and that has pretty much came to fruition. But this all-European security structure was supposed to be based on the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, what was this proposal and, and what happened to it? Just to clarify, when I said that NATO had become a more political organization, I want to emphasize the relative statement there. It's relatively more political. It is not at root a political organization. It is still a military alliance of, in a fundamental sense. So just to clarify that point briefly. As for the CSCE issue that you raised, 
This was a fundamental Soviet claim, or the Soviets kept seeking a new security architecture, a cooperative security architecture, a uh, common European home in the parlance of the day. The U.S. was very much opposed to building a new security organization, particularly in the fraught environment of the early 90s. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. When things are in flux, like a great power such as the Soviet Union declining, you want to maintain as much stability as humanly possible. That all makes perfect sense very is very strategic and very wise. At the same time, however, the U.S. was promising the Soviet Union, it was throwing the Soviet Union many, many bones in this regard. And as part of the promise that NATO would become a more political organization, we're telling the Soviet Union that over time, the CSCE could be built up into something more than it then was, or the OSCE could be built up into something more than it then was. So the point is that you're crafting an image in the Soviet mind that, hey, I, the Soviet Union, may not get this whole pan-European security institution that I want, but at least I'm going to get a world where NATO is less important, where I have a new security organization that looks more important, and that this gives me options for the future. That, that's more what the U.S. ambition was, or what the U.S. thought process was. Let me give the Soviet Union, that seems to be the U.S. ambition, give the Soviet Union hope for the future. Now, there's also, amongst this debate about the origins of the post-Cold War in Europe, is the notion that Russia would be invited or join NATO in some sort of capacity. And the, the idea of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, I, I assume, also is based on Russia being a partner of that security structure. The the possibility of either Russia becoming part of an all-European security structure or Russia even becoming a potential member of NATO, was that an was that ever a serious issue or is this something that was brought up and played about and not taken very seriously? Well, so you're raising two different points. One is the question over CSCE and the future of a pan-European security institution. The second one is Russia's role vis-a-vis NATO. So on the first point, Russia was already a part of the OSCE and the idea of building up the OSCE, the then OSCE, to something more, or the then CSCE, excuse me, into something more, was very much bandied about. This is a, the U.S. tells, U.S. officials tell Soviet officials that this is in fact going to be a more important security organization. Now, privately, the U.S. is saying to itself, the CSCE could be a big problem for us if it's built up, and we must kind of keep it on uh, on a slow boil in order to preserve NATO's centrality to the post-Cold War Europe. So there is a public persona vis-a-vis the Soviets and internal dialogue that are at loggerheads. But there is a conversation that says the Soviet Union will be part of a security organization that will be made more important than it currently then, than it currently, than it then was. That's point number one. As for joining NATO, Soviet officials occasionally broach the idea. Gorbachev in 1990 actually brings up the idea on several different occasions. Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister, does the same. But the U.S. is very much aware that, or very much you know, kind of spracked that issue for the time being, since, frankly, the idea of the, of the Soviet Union joining NATO at that point in time is ludicrous. And while there are subsequent U.S. initiatives to bring the Soviet Union more towards NATO, giving it observer status and so on and so forth, that seems to be a far lower priority for the United States than many other items. This is a little further afield than what I've looked at, but my, but my impression is that even in the latter half of 1990, the U.S. is looking at the possibility of giving the Soviet Union a place to observe without any substantive input into NATO dialogue. 
the other interesting aspect that you point out, and, and you've kind of alluded to this earlier in our discussion by looking at the various sides of the within the United States government and the types of documents that are being produced, and that is that while U.S. officials are floating the idea of no NATO expansion eastward to in their negotiations with the Russians, private discussions within U.S. government point to a different direction, and that is a desire to, quote, move into Eastern Europe's power vacuum to facilitate, quote, a much more robust and constructive U.S. role in the center of Europe. Talk about these private conversations within the U.S. government, and what does this tell you vis-a-vis their negotiations with the Russians. You have to remember that by the time 89 and 90 roll around, there are really big questions about what the future U.S. role in Europe is going to be. The U.S., you know, as I'm sure you and many of the listeners know, was dragged fairly kicking and screaming into Europe by the fear of a Soviet campaign against the West in the early days of the Cold War. And so if the Soviet Union is now retrenching from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union is no longer as much of a threat, then the question becomes, why should the U.S. stick around? Now, there are many reasons why the U.S. should stick around, and I'm not going to debate those. But the, con- but the concern is this will lead to an unraveling or a weakening of the U.S. presence. So as the German reunification issue with its implications for NATO comes along, this is overlaid with U.S. fears of the future of U.S. presence in Europe. And so one of the key issues that comes up early on in U.S. discussions is a recognition that by the U.S. playing a bigger role in Eastern Europe, we solve the problem of whether the U.S. could remain. In other words, by by being active in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and standing between a reunified Germany and the former USSR, or the then USSR, that was retrenching, the U.S. gives itself a post-Cold War mission, one of many post-Cold War missions. So that's very early. That, that develops in U.S. policy fairly close to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then once the Berlin Wall falls and German reunification becomes a really uh, runaway train in many ways, the U.S. begins looking at NATO as the vehicle for projecting U.S. influence into Eastern Europe. Occasionally, you'll see hints of questions such as, could the U.S. alone project power into Eastern Europe that is operate outside of NATO and Eastern Europe? And there's no real care. From what I can tell, there's not a careful evaluation of that issue. But very quickly, NATO is seen as, no, we should use NATO to go this route. And that's overlaid with European calls, former members of the Warsaw Pact, or soon to be former members of the Warsaw Pact, themselves seeking to gain entry into NATO. Hungary does that early on. Poland does it shortly thereafter. So these are very prominent foreign members of the Warsaw Pact that are beating, you know, already knocking on NATO's door. So the U.S. concern with maintaining a presence in Europe, with getting between the Soviet Union and Germany, soon is overlaid with, with the Eastern, Europe, Eastern Europe's own interest in joining NATO. So this becomes a, a uh, self-fulfilling cycle in some ways. Right. So there's a push-pull thing going exactly, on. Yeah. Exactly. So n- let me ask then, is there a concern or did you see a concern amongst the, uh, U.S. officials that if you, the U.S. retreats from Europe, is there a concern that the old geopolitical formulation of Europe pre-1941 would take hold. So you would have another, was it, so was there a concern similar to the concern in 1945, which is if you allow for, say, a dominant Germany 
and U.S. retreats, would you get the revival of those old power str- those power struggles between European states that existed before the, the the Second World War? You know, this is a really terrific and a really interesting question. Someone really needs to look into this a bit more. Because on the one hand, yes, U.S. officials are repeatedly voicing concerns that if the U.S. leaves Europe, there'll be a return to internecine European conflict, that you might see windows of opportunity, power vacuum. At the same time, President Bush and his advisors are proclaiming, at least to the European allies and to the Soviet Union, that Germany is transformed, that Europe is no longer uh, under duress in the same way it was before the Cold War. So these are fundamentally oppositional statements. You can't both claim that Germany at all have been transformed and we're worried about a return of European conflict. Either Europe is transformed or it's not. So there's a tension there, and someone needs to suss out quite how that worked in U.S. policymaking. But there is a real concern, from what I can tell, that somehow stability in Europe will go away if the U.S. retreats. And, and I don't think that's wrong. I, do, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that we don't know what the world would have looked like. We certainly, we certainly know from French and British and Soviet sources that the French, the British, and the Soviets had a weird kind of alignment to, to try to prevent German reunification, or at least slow down German reunification early on. And so it's not impossible to imagine that if Germany had reunified and the U.S. indeed had left Europe, that you would not have seen a weird kind of return of pre-1945 European politics, where you had shifting coalitions and shifting alignments with you know unforeseen consequences. Again, the U.S. view on this matter seems to be a little bit in in tension. It seems to be a little more ad hoc and less fully weighed out than we would like. But it does seem to be there was an underlying current, at least in some segments of the U.S. policymaking elite, that this might happen. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking while you were talking is that, well, maybe this doesn't have so much to do with taking advantage of Russian weakness, but as it says, fill in the power vacuum to maintain a stable European continent as another driver. I mean, both of those can exist at the same time, but that is also a concern. Yes, and I, and I certainly wouldn't want to claim that the U.S. was acting uh, only vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Just that if you're asking the question, what is, you know, this, the possible return of future European balance of power politics versus the near term reality that if you don't take advantage of German reunification, the Soviet Union might have an opportunity to maintain a prominent role in Eastern Europe. One's a very near term concern. One's a possible future concern. And my, my sense is that the near term concern vis-a-vis the Soviet Union trumped the long term concern vis-a-vis the future of European stability. But both were in operation in some way. And finally, I want to talk a bit about the reactions that you've gotten from your LA Times op-ed, which is certainly more widely read and, and commented on, which summarize your findings in your, your academic article and then the article as a whole. And I was struck by some of the commentary. One commentator wrote, quote, the false narrative peddled by Moscow and its supporters is not only factually wrong, It is morally and strategically corrosive. It is high time we defend that record and expose this deceitful narrative for the fraud it is. Now, I'm not so interested on your personal reaction to this, but more about you're working in this field, you're writing about this period. What does these types of statements say about the current climate and the challenges 
um, for scholars and other people who are looking at this question historically in clarifying the historical record around the origins of post-Cold War Europe? Well, there, there are several things to note there. Number one, I think it speaks to, the, to a lingering sense that Russia might always be an adversary or might be an adversary. I think there's a lingering, I think there's a very real and legitimate, I'm not critiquing that concern that Russia, in fact, is opposed to the U.S. and Western interests broadly defined, and that therefore anything that gives Russia any due regard is dangerous for the West. So I think that's a very real narrative out there and a very real concern. We shouldn't understate that. It's a it's a fair point to have. If you believe that Russia is a sincere threat, that's a totally fair narrative. I don't think, however, that requires denying that the U.S. did certain things at time one that Russia is calling the United States on at time two. I think we can acknowledge that the U.S. said certain things and did certain things to try to create a better world that would be less hospitable for Russian aggression, and that this is the world in which we now inhabit as a result of that of those claims. So I think you can have your cake and eat it too in that regard. That's number one. Number two is I think also we should recognize that this is that these debates over what the U.S. promised the Soviet Union, then Soviet Union, have resonance because it cuts against the grain of say, the liberal tradition, small l, in, in U.S. foreign policy. And you hear this over and over and over when various members of the U.S. foreign policy establishment and East European member states claim that Eastern Europe had the sovereign right to join NATO. And so you hear people claim that, hear people say that to talk about a NATO non-expansion pledge is to deny the rights of Eastern Europe. I would just know, I have no argument that the member states of Eastern Europe have the right to try to join NATO. There's no, there's no debate about that. But by the same token, states pursue their, pursue their interests as they see fit. And the U.S. and other members of NATO had the right to deny these member states, these Eastern European states, entree into NATO if doing so was seen as conflicting with U.S. interests vis-a-vis Russia. So, you know, so this narrative of we couldn't possibly have done this, we couldn't possibly make a pledge credible because it denies the sovereign rights of Eastern Europe is weird because it sort of ignores the U.S. sovereign right to say no to these countries and the U.S. right to pursue its interests vis-a-vis other big powers. Not all states have the same material or strategic weight in world politics, a kind of realpolitik 101 perspective. And the last point is this debate is very emotional for any number of reasons. And there are good reasons for it to be emotional, and there are good reasons for us to take it seriously. But I think to the extent that we want to craft a sound policy for Europe and craft a sound policy for U.S. national security, it's important to step back and let the passion fall by the wayside. I'm not making a claim that that the legitimacy of Russian claims gives them the right to engage in actions in Eastern Europe, nor do I think U.S. policymakers want to hear that. But by the same token, we should also allow that the historical accuracy of Russian complaints, or at least in this one narrow case, offers some room to say maybe the U.S. engaged in the wrong kind of behavior, or at least suboptimal behavior, negative behavior, you know, so far as U.S.-Russian relations are concerned. And so to craft a sound policy requires stepping back from the emotions and the ingrained desire to dig in and double down on your position and just ask what are the interests at stake and how do we go about moving past these historical diatribes.
That was Josh Schifrinson, an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University and author of Deal or No Deal, The End of the Cold War and the U.S. Offer to Limit NATO Expansion, published in the spring 2016 issue of International Security. And Russia's got a point. The U.S. broke a NATO promise in the L.A. Times. If you'd like to submit a question to Josh, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. Ben Peters, who I interviewed about the history of the Soviet internet two podcasts ago, received the question from listener Kimberly. Kimberly asks, How well is this history of the Soviet internet to current policymakers or other actors in Russia? Given the current pressures to grow domestic tech capability and state control of the internet, does this history and missed opportunities inform decision-making on any way? Thanks, Kimberly. That's a great question, to which I have a tentative answer. I think the perhaps unsurprising answer is that no, very few, if any, actors in the Russian tech industry and state are aware of this history. I suspect that so far the story of the Soviet networks remains isolated to an aging class of scientists. Of course, we could entertain an author's fantasy that perhaps this will change a bit once the book is translated into Russian and brought into the right hands. Perhaps our listeners have thoughts about this possibility. I would, of course, not complain. But I think the more relevant point that you raise is that even in the rare moments that history and policymaking do interact, there is no guarantee how history will be interpreted. I could imagine, for example, that in certain hands, the Ogas story could be received as a prophetic project before its time, an insurance that, with history on his side, some future Russian tech mogul stands ready to properly nationalize the internet. Of course, on the other hand, the Ogas story should also be read as a cautionary tale. Another fascinating example in the long arc of two large technological hero projects stretching from collectivization to Medvedev's 2010 Skolkova Innovation Center in South Moscow. So in the first reading, the Soviet internet bolsters its successor, and in the second, it curbs enthusiasm and should drive closer analysis about, say, the institutional foundations and unexpected political costs behind national tech reform projects. Of course, uh, the speculation about how the story is read of cor- uh, presumes that it will make it into the hands of decision makers at all. And right now, it's too early to be sure about either. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Моя Морозечка, моя ты куколка, моя Морозечка, моя ты душенька, моя Морозечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.